Canada unequivocally condemns the terrorist attack by Hamas against Israel. We stand by Israel and its right to defend itself according to international law. We also know that Hamas is not the Palestinian people. It does not represent their aspiration and offers nothing more than more chaos, loss, and heartache. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie speaking earlier today, uh, announcing plans to start airlifting Canadians out of Israel begin, beginning later this week. Now, there are two Canadians confirmed dead. A third is presumed dead. Melanie Jolie did not want to answer specific questions today as to whether there may be Canadian hostages held by Hamas. I will not confirm whether Canada has any hostages because I don't want to increase the value and put their uh, lives in danger. Um, what I can say, though, is we've been in contact with the chief negotiator uh, of hostages in Israel, and Canada will be sending a team of experts to support him and his team in his work. So that from uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister today, it remains uh, a concerning situation in Israel. Obviously, Israeli troops are building up along Gaza's border. Looks as though uh, Israel is preparing for a ground assault into Gaza. Uh, as Israel now begins the process of trying to dismantle and destroy Hamas as a military threat. Now, there was some concern today, a bit of a false alarm, maybe as it turned out, about a possible Hezbollah attack or incursion from the north. Uh, but that remains a big concern at the moment. Uh, and, and what the end game of all of this is. So joining us uh, for some thoughts uh, on the situation where all of this uh, might be headed, very pleased to welcome to the program. Uh, here this afternoon, Aurel Braun, a professor of political science, international relations at University of Toronto, also an associate at the Davis Center at Harvard University. Professor Braun, good to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, like I said, I mean, the, the reports about a, a northern incursion turned out to be, uh, as far as we know at this point, a bit of a false alarm. But what, what is the level of concern, do you think, about this conflict expanding? There is justifiable concern because certain parties have a vested interest in expanding it. Hezbollah essentially is a proxy of Iran. Iran benefits enormously from this conflict uh, in Israel and in Gaza. They wanted to stop the enlargement of the peace process, the Abraham Accords. They were very concerned in Iran that Israel and Saudi Arabia, which uh, has the two holiest sites in Islam, Mecca and Medina, were on the verge, it appeared, of reaching a peace agreement. And uh, this uh, attack from Gaza put that on the back burner, if not entirely scuppered it. So... Um, it is uh, uh, an extremely volatile period, and we will have to see if uh, Hezbollah, which has a vast arsenal, much of it provided by Iran of somewhere like 150,000 missiles, if they will get uh, engaged in this uh, conflict, and uh, then uh, we will have a multi-front uh, uh, war. Uh, the latest news we have today regarding the death toll from the Hamas attack on the weekend, uh, it's, it's now surpassed 1,000, and, and that's still part of what, what you know, officials are focusing on, is uh, trying to understand the scope of this, uh, you know, still finding bodies. It's, it's, it's really grim, uh, obviously, but to try to make sense of why Hamas did this or what their end game was, what's your sense of why Hamas decided to act this way now? 
You know, I, I think we have a kind of conceptual problem in looking at uh, this from uh, that kind of uh, perspective. And if I may, mm-hmm. uh, my explain. Um, something has happened in the past uh, 36 hours that I think that may turn out to be an inflection point in terms of moral assessments and in terms of the war itself. And so I think it would be quite important to look at the statement that was put out by five crucial democracies a little bit more than a day ago. Uh, The leaders of the United States, United Kingdom, Germany, France, and Italy issued a joint statement. In that joint statement, they declared not only that they supported Israel in its efforts to defend itself and its people against these atrocities by Hamas, but they also declared that Hamas uh, does not represent the aspirations of uh, the Palestinian people. They brought nothing to the Palestinian people other than more uh, more terror and bloodshed. And then they went on to say something really crucial that goes to that question of what prompted uh, Hamas and why were they doing these things. And they said that they wanted to make clear, if I may quote, they want to make clear that the terrorist actions of Hamas have no justification, no legitimacy, and must be universally condemned. Right. And so I'm afraid if we try to find some motivation, it would be like asking, why did Al-Qaeda attack the United States? Right. Uh, why did Boko Haram murder schoolgirls? Why did uh, ISIS behead people? And terrorism has its own logic. And with due respect, uh, uh, Asking these questions, which uh, any social scientist like myself would be tempted to ask, really needs to come up up against these moral restraints that were outlined in such a powerful way by these five democracies that there is no justification, no legitimacy, and it has to be universally condemned because that is the only way to deal with terrorism. Well, that's an important point. If nothing else, then perhaps this is clarifying that, that we better understand what Hamas is. It, it's, it's certainly not pragmatic in any sense. It's certainly not a resistance in any sense. There was certainly no interest uh, on, on its part in any kind of, of peace or two-state solution. Uh, if nothing else, we, we certainly have fewer and hopefully no illusions about Hamas now moving forward. Well, this is why what happened, these statements that were issued, and also you're aware, of course, and uh, you listen to the statement put out by President Biden, which was absolutely striking. Uh, I cannot think of any other president who spoke about some foreign event in these terms, where President Biden uh, yesterday, in a very powerful and emotional speech, said that what Hamas was doing was pure, unadulterated evil. Mm-hmm. And he went over what they did, in part, not all of it, because it was too gruesome. But he talked about parents being butchered, using their bodies to try to protect their children. Stomach-turning reports of babies being killed, entire yeah. families slain. Young people massacred while attending a musical festival uh, that celebrated peace. Women raped, assaulted, paraded as trophies. And other reports of the desecration of the bodies of captured Israeli women who stripped naked and paraded in Gaza and spit upon by Hamas supporters. Uh, some of the reports on BBC talked about the fact that there may be evidence 
that babies were decapitated by Hamas. And so terminology becomes very important. Uh, much of the news media has, at least until now, used such weasel terms as militant. Right. Hamas are militants. And yet, almost every democratic country had classified Hamas and Islamic Jihad as a terrorist group. Under the Canadian criminal code, they are listed as terrorist entities. This is reviewed every five years. This mm-hmm. was reviewed in 2021, and they kept on the list. And their actions, brutality, which was no different from ISIS, no different from Boko Haram, no different from Al-Qaeda. By what stretch of the imagination are we morally justified not, not to call them but they are designated under the criminal code, terrorists. Well, and, and further to that, I mean, Canada's response, uh, certainly what we've heard, what we heard from the prime minister the other night, what we heard from the foreign affairs minister today, has been pretty unequivocal in, in condemning Hamas and supporting Israel. You mentioned that statement from, from these five members of the G7. I guess Canada's technically not part of what's known as the Quint, but it did seem like maybe we were, were sort of cast aside as, as these five countries spoke with one voice. I mean, in terms of Canada's relevance or, or whether we're you know, playing any kind of an important role here? What's your sense of that? We can play an important role. We are a group of seven countries. The Quint is a very informal organization. We could have uh, tried to get into that statement. I'd like to find out why we did not mm-hmm. make an effort. And the statement that was put out by Melanie Jolie is quite a bit weaker because there's one element of it, uh, which uh, was that, uh, yes, Israel has a right to defend itself, and should do so under international law. Uh, why would we choose to lecture Israel about international law? Right. This is a country that has acted according to international law. They have been restrained in every possible way as uh, a former chief justice of uh, the Supreme Court of Israel, Aaron Barak said, as a democracy, Israel fights with one hand tied behind its back. If you look at the massive forces that Israel has assembled and the extraordinary firepower that they now have on the borders of Gaza, if they were not restrained by international law, you wouldn't see hundreds of casualties in Gaza. You would see tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people dead. So for Melanie Shirley to add that, which the Quint did not, mm-hmm. is not exactly giving support at the same level. And it would be a question, why could we not? Uh, is our conscience not shocked as much as that of President Biden, who said that Israel must act and Israel has a duty to act in this kind of situation? Why would our statement be any less than that? Why do we not acknowledge that Canadians were also killed Right. And it's possible that Canadians were kidnapped. Why do we not acknowledge that terrorism is not a local phenomenon, but a worldwide threat? 
this, this situation feels different. And certainly when, when we look at the reaction inside Israel and just the, the enormous shock and grief, even the anger and frustration that, uh, you know, they, they were caught off guard. But uh, certainly the resolve to see this through. What's your sense of the mood in Israel? Does this feel different this time? And, and are they prepared for a, a long road forward here, do you think? It feels uh, totally different from other uh, attacks by Hamas because it destroys many illusions that the Israelis had. And the statements that came out from uh, the group of key Western states, including the United States, also shows a kind of change of mentality and of perception. And that is... Uh, that not only was there a massive intelligence and operational failure on the part of Israel, but there was also a failure of imagination that we bought collectively, not just Israel, into myths. We bought into the myth that Hamas was moderating because they altered slightly their charter. The original charter called for the murder of all Jews whenever possible. And we bought into the myth that Hamas, which is designated as a terrorist organization, it is not some academic stadium, this is the criminal code of Canada. Uh, we bought it to the myth that they could be deterred or contained or moderated or bought off. And all of that was false. And those illusions now have disappeared in Israel and they are disappearing uh, in, the democratic, uh, in the democratic world. In Israel, we also see now that they're forming uh, an emergency united government right. that Benny Gantz has already agreed to join, and we'll see if other opposition leaders join as well. And having concluded that Hamas cannot be deterred, contained, moderated, just as we had this illusion about or delusion about the Taliban, that somebody could negotiate with them, and then we are shocked somehow that when they take over, they are the same Taliban, torturing, repressing women, opponents, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, at this point, there seems to be a conclusion, but we'd have to see that nothing short of eradicating Hamas is going to bring peace. And what was very important about the statement uh, made by the Western leaders was that Hamas was not only an enemy of Israel's, but Hamas is also an enemy of the Palestinian people. And that consequently, there may be no choice. You cannot have peace, you cannot have progress until you eradicate what President Biden called this pure, unadulterated evil. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Braun, appreciate your perspective uh, on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Oral Braun, Professor of Political Science, International Relations, University of Toronto, also an associate of the Davis Center at Harvard University. So some important points as we make sense of what's happening today here and uh, where this all goes from here. But if nothing else, we've got a lot of shattered illusions about what we wanted Hamas to be or thought maybe they could be. They've shown what they truly are. Thank <laughs> you. 
And welcome back. Thanks for being with us here on this Wednesday afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you. Much more to get to this afternoon, including more of your phone calls, 403-974-8255. Uh, coming up this weekend, it is Imaginarium happening, a big part of WordFest, WordFest.com. A uh, number of authors going to be involved in the events this weekend, including our next guest, in fact, is going to be involved in four separate events happening this weekend. Again, more details at, at WordFest.com. Susan Casey is a journalist and author, the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Voices in the Ocean, The Wave, and The Devil's Teeth. Her latest is a deep dive, if you will, uh, into the uh, world of deep oceans, uh, which lies down there and why it matters so much uh, to us dwelling here on the land. It's called The Underworld, Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean. Susan Casey joins us on the line here this afternoon. Susan, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Maybe there's a tendency that we, we think of the oceans and especially the, the deepest parts of the oceans as just kind of vast nothingness that we, maybe that's why we, we don't focus as much on it as we should. I mean, I think part of what you're doing is to, to draw our interest into all of this, but why is there that void, do you think? Well, the, it, it's the opposite of a void that's, um, it, it, but, but I think you're right that people perceive it as sort of vast, empty space, like maybe a little bit like looking above in outer right. space. and uh, But, you know, here's the statistic that always kind of blows my mind, is if you think of the world as a three-dimensional biosphere, um, a living habitat, mm -hmm. uh, the 2% that uh, is it, everything that we see on land, terrestrial part of this is 2%, 98% of it is ocean, and 95% of that is deep ocean, so that the water is below 600 feet. So the Earth is, you know, not, not just an ocean planet, but it's a deep ocean planet. So there's, uh, not only is there a lot going on down there, it's most of what is happening on Earth. It's the vast, vast majority of the biosphere, but we can't see it. So it's out of sight, out of mind. And so really, unlike space, it's just this complete matrix of life biologically speaking, and then geologically, there are, you know, the largest uh, features on the planet are in the deep ocean. So it's, yeah. <laughs> if anything, the opposite of a sort of a boring, um, uninteresting, lifeless, you know, void place. It's really a happening place. Well, maybe the other side of that, and, and maybe this overlaps to some degree, but also the, the you know, the, the notion that it's, it's hostile and, and dangerous, which I suppose in some ways it is. I mean, you're one of the few people that's actually gone down to some of these depths, you know, 5,000 meters or so, and that's not even the full depths of the ocean. So it is forbidding in a way too, isn't it? Oh, oh yes, for sure. I mean, and I think it sort of rolls up a lot of our common fears into one neat package. I mean, it isn't built for us because of the pressures um, I mean, at the very bottom of the deepest spot in the ocean, which is in the Mariana Trench, and it's almost 36,000 feet deep or just um, shy of 11 kilometers deep, it's the, the amount of pressure, and, you know, forgive me for using, uh, I, I don't have the metric measurement offhand here, but um, 16,000 pounds of pressure per square inch uh, down there. So any vehicle that goes down there that's carrying human beings has to be, uh, able to withstand that kind of pressure from every direction. And so it's a very hard engineering problem. It has been accomplished, um, but only very recently, like surprisingly recently, when you think of how much uh, space activity there's been. And um, it, it really commands your respect, the deep ocean. It, it isn't a place where we, as I've written in my book, 
it's a place where we can't even really pretend to be in charge. We just right. go there with respect and with the right engineering, and we will see wondrous things. But, yeah, it, it definitely, it's not a small event to go down there. No, it's not. And I mean, we, we saw that, of course, recently in, in a very high profile and tragic way. And what happened uh, with Ocean Gate, their, their yeah. Titan submersible. And I mean, it highlights the risks, uh, clearly, of, of these kinds of endeavors. But I don't know. I think there's maybe a concern, too, that it could discourage further explanation. Like, what are your worries about the implications of that, that tragedy? Well, I, I wrote a big piece. Uh, Rita, it, this happened right as my book was about to come out, and I wrote a piece for Vanity Fair about it. Um, and one of the things that I was worried about right in the beginning was that people would think that, oh, my God, these, these deep-sea submersibles are just it, like Russian roulette. Like, you may come back up to the surface. You may not. And, and it's also important to keep in mind that there aren't very many uh, vehicles that can take people down below 4,000 meters, which was the depth that the Titan was um, aiming for. Uh, but I think what I was very happy to see is that people began to understand immediately and the stories got out that this was a real outlier, this sub. There are, um, you know, as, as I said previously, the, the physics of going down there are well known. Right. And we have the materials and the um, industrial technologies to be able to engineer for safe passage down there, but it's very expensive and the process for testing is very rigorous, and that's why there's not that many of them. They all have their own ships, their own hangars, their own crews. Like, they're treated like space shuttles because that's sort of the level of engineering you're talking about. Whereas the Titan was like, I, I mean, I, it would be like as if I built an airplane out of styrofoam in my backyard. Like, it just mm -hmm. wasn't, it was a real, real outlier, and he just skipped a lot of the basic safety steps. And I really love talking about this because I love explaining to people um, why it's safe and why we shouldn't fear, but we have to, as I said earlier, respect the ocean's um, parameters, you know, and this was a sort of a wing and a prayer type operation that was well known in the very small, very tight-knit world of deep-sea exploration and in manned vehicles to be quite frightening, and what happened tragically was what everybody feared would happen, so it was a real tragedy and it did not have to happen. But um, prior to the Titan, I should just add, there hadn't been a fatality or even a serious accident in manned submersible since, um, for, for almost 50 years, since 1973. So statistically speaking, they're the safest mode of transportation on Earth. It's just they're a really difficult process. You, have to, you yeah. can't cut corners in that environment ever. Well, no kidding. And I mean, even when done yeah. properly, I, I would imagine it is a, a surreal experience to to go down to those depths. Almost, a, I I would imagine in a way, somewhat claustrophobic too. Well, you know, the only people I think that might not enjoy it are people who are claustrophobic. And surprisingly, I think a lot of people feel like they might be. But it really changes your perspective of our place on Earth and what the Earth is. I mean, you fall on the deepest dive I did. We fell for more than two and a half hours. Just free fell in the, through the water column. And, and as you mentioned, it was it went just over 5,000 meters, and it's possible elsewhere in the ocean to go to almost 11,000 meters. So you just realize the scope of it. It's really hard for us to wrap our heads around, but people think of it as scary. They think of it as dark. They think of it as forbidding. But what people don't realize about it is just how magisterial it is and, and how beautiful. It's very different. Um, it's a world that it's the other world within our world. Uh, so 
I would love it if more people could go down and witness this. I mean, the creatures that you see, uh, bioluminescence is a huge strategy for life down there. So the, there are fireworks underwater. There are creatures that light themselves up and it's very dazzling and large and portentous and it has this vibe of being quite serene because when you get below the surface, there's none of the wind, the waves, you know, the turbulence. You're just sort of in this environment that you only really can recognize it as water by seeing the creatures swimming by. Right. And I guess, you know, an important point in all of this is it's not about going down to see what we know is already there. I mean, that's part of it, but we, we are still learning new things. We are still discovering new things. Oh, gosh, yes, absolutely. I mean, we've only mapped 25% of the world's seafloor at high resolution, which means that we can really see what's down there, down to the small features. And, um, you know, we've got interactive 3D maps of Venus and Mars. So we are certainly on on our way to learning more about the Earth. We know a lot about it, but it's so big, and there are so many different dimensions to it. And, in fact, the life that is in the deep ocean extends even a mile beneath the seafloor. So there's an ecosystem even below the bottom of the ocean. So there's just a ton to learn, and it's really exciting science, and it has a direct impact on um, our climate. I mean, the deep ocean runs a climate system. It, it It's just the whole well-being and um, biogeochemical regulation of the Earth. It all happens down there. Well, and I mean, there is maybe a connection between you know what, what's what's above and what's what's beneath because you know if we can understand the sorts of life that can exist in these sorts of conditions, you know we know that uh, Europa, one of Jupiter's moons, uh, you know has has an ocean. There are probably other planets or, or moons we might discover along the way that do too. And and this I I would imagine can help us shape that understanding of what could potentially you know lie beneath uh, the the water in other parts of of our solar system or beyond. Oh, yeah. It's a very um, exciting branch of science. And I, as I was going out on expeditions, I kept running into NASA. NASA's doing all this experimentation in the deep ocean. And one of the places that I dive is considered to be a, a, a comp- almost direct analog for Mars because of the way the microbial life there. Uh, it's kind of iron, an iron-based ecosystem like Mars. And so they're very, very interested in I think when you, there's some indications that Enceladus um, and Europa, really it looks like they have all the ingredients for at least microbial life in their really vast oceans. So that's super exciting. And I mean, I don't know if it will be something that happens in the next 10 years, but hopefully in the next 20. The other side of all of this is is understanding what we need to protect, what we have, why it matters so much, and, you know, the way we're affecting that. I know something in particular you've you've written a lot about and talk about in the book is, you know, the threat of deep sea mining, but a lot of other bigger and and broader challenges, too. So what about how vital these these deep oceans are to us? Well, they they really are, you know, the best way... I've thought a lot about how can I best sort of convey this, and I described it as the motherboard of the planet. It's like where everything sort of originates from and is plugged into in some to some extent. So climate change is going to have a huge impact on what happens in the deep ocean because even small, it's very stable environment, relatively speaking. And so all of a sudden to go along and, and sort of tilt this ecosystem because of its vastness, could have profound effects on the food web in the ocean, the different circulation patterns of the ocean, which are, you know, the ways that heat is transported. And all of these things will make for um, differences, (laughs) to put it in a euphemistic way, (laughs) above the surface. So 
that is, in a, in a sense, scientists are really racing to understand this right now because we, it will, uh, the ocean is so vast that any changes are going to affect us so profoundly. We really need to understand how this very intricate Earth system works all together. And you can't really do that without incorporating, you know, the 95% of it that lies below 600 feet. Well, the book is called The Underworld Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean. As mentioned, it'll be in Calgary here this weekend for Imaginarium, part of WordFest, WordFest.com. As mentioned, four events you'll be a part of this weekend. Uh, Susan, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. And thank you. It was a pleasure. Welcome back. There's been uh, some more focus recently on the issue of abandoned, inactive, orphaned wells in Alberta. The extent to which this is a problem and how we deal with it moving forward. Uh, The government has, I think, more or less embraced a rather controversial approach to this. Uh, The so-called R-Star proposal or the idea that we would try to incentivize uh, companies to, to clean these wells up. Of course, you got an issue where companies are already legally obligated uh, to clean up their mess. We've also got an Orphan Wells Association that uh, industry is supposed to pay into and that is supposed to then deal with these uh, liabilities that don't have, I guess, a, a legal owner or an entity that's legally responsible. So the rules we have in place, I mean, the fact that the government is, is looking at uh, a controversial approach does suggest that our status quo isn't really working. So why is that? And what is the the full scope of the problem in terms of the overall cost of all of this, in terms of the overall numbers here? Well, a new report out today from the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary uh, finds that the costs are massive, the numbers are massive, and that indeed the status quo is failing. But what we need is an overhaul of the rules. In fact, what we need maybe first of all is a public inquiry into all of this so that we can have a full accounting of the situation and how we got here. So joining us to talk more about this report, which you can find at policyschool.ca, is one of the authors, Sean Fluker, is associate professor, faculty of law at the University of Calgary, also with the School of Public Policy. Sean, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. All right, so let's just put it in context of what we're talking about here, the, you know, the whole question of the liability that exists. Because I guess, big picture, we are talking about all these different sort of legal categories like inactive, abandoned, orphaned. This is, this is all of it. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated tapestry for sure. Um, you know, the, the overall numbers are, you know, estimated the Auditor General uh, pegged them at 60 billion dollars that is the sort of cost to clean up existing uh drilled wells uh, in the province and you know some people think that's that's a low number uh so we're looking at you know huge dollars um you know 60 billion dollars is you know almost almost equal to the total government debt in alberta at the moment so so it is a big number mm-hmm. and uh you know, the Alberta Energy Regulator, which is the agency responsible for overseeing all of this, uh, holds something like $300 million in funds from industry to, uh, to pay for all that. So there's a massive gap there. Yeah, no kidding. Um, there, there does seem to be um, 
you know, a, a cloud over all of this in terms of a lack of transparency, right? It should be simple enough to, to document all of this, to calculate all of this, but how difficult is it to, to get to an exact number uh, of wells that, that need to be reclaimed and cleaned up and, and the, the exact cost of all of that? Yeah, that's a great question or observation. I mean, it is difficult, actually, to sort of pull this all together in terms of, you know, getting numbers of wells or facilities that really need to be cleaned up. There's a, you know, a a complicated collection of terms that get used throughout, whether it's inactive wells or orphan wells or what have you. And the Alberta Energy Regulator or the government as a whole really publishes... um, very little information uh, on on this on this problem. So you, you know the, the Alberta Energy Regulator's got a, some graphics on its website that give you a breakdown of of wells. I mean, even those graphics are difficult to to, to to get through on an initial glance. But it's hard to get a true sense of the of the number. And I, I'm not even one of the things I'll point out is. That's a problem, obviously, in and of itself. And, you know, the Auditor General pointed to the Alberta Energy Regulator to say, you know, your systems to assess this risk, um, quite frankly, need to be uh, need to be improved. So the study that myself and my colleagues uh, published today with the School of Public Policy is to say that that performance is the function of a of a weak uh, regulatory framework, frankly, which has allowed this problem to get to get to the, the uh, size that it is. So we talk about the liability or the unfunded part of the liability. So we, we can look at the, the total estimates uh, of all of this work and we can look at the money that's been set aside to pay for it. But if a company that, that still exists is still in operation, is still making profit in Alberta, um, where did their resources fit in? Because if they have a legal liability for a site and they exist and, and they, they have profits, they have revenues... Is, is that still an, considered an unfunded liability, or where do their resources come into play? Right. So it is in the sense that, you know, the, the money that the company uh, presumably has the funds to, to close those uh, facilities appropriately when the time comes to do that. However, um, you know, that, that money is not, you know, there, there's no, the, the legal, the regulatory framework never imposes a time frame on when that work has to happen and so what that has led to is uh, companies have consistently just pushed this work off into the future i mean sometimes obviously they get into asset transactions and they sell those obligations to somebody else and so meanwhile the 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 regulator or the government isn't really holding very much Money, you know, what we'd call a security deposit, to ensure that you know when it comes time to have that work done, and there is no legislated time frame, so we don't, you know, it's up to the company to decide, frankly, when they're going to do that work. Um, you know, there, there's, it's hard to know. So all those liabilities become unfunded because there's no obligation that is crystallized until the energy regulator orders the work to be done and um you know it is really not um uh yeah it just hasn't done that in in a in a timely manner so you know we're left with the situation where we have you know 200,000 um non-producing wells uh that need to be closed 
Right. And that, that need varies, I guess. So, so when we talk about the potential environmental impact of, of this problem, you know, some are, are more pressing than others. But what, what is the concern about uh, these, these sites being just left as they are and not being dealt with? Right. So, sure. And, you know, I, there's a distinction to be made probably between some of these sites that are on, you know, someone's private land versus public lands. And so, you know, I've, you know, heard from landowners over the years who say, look, you know, I've got this um, inactive site on my land and, you know, I go to get financing and the bank tells me that the that site's a problem because yeah. it represents risk. Um, but nobody nobody's coming to clean it up because the, the law doesn't, doesn't require the company to clean it up um, on any particular time frame. So, you know, that ends up uh, becoming a huge problem for a, for a landowner and I guess for the public generally, if we want to speak to the wells that are on, um, that are, that are on, that are on public land. Mm -hmm. Right. But in terms of environmental impact, like are we talking about sites that are actively posing a threat to the environment? Uh, well, that varies for sure. Mm -hmm. um, that would have to be a site-by-site -site, uh, assessment. And, and one of the other problems that's um, been identified by the Auditor General and others is that, you know, uh, the, the money that is being spent uh, on a lot of this work, uh, it does tend to be spent on some of those sites that are easier to clean up. So um, we can probably infer from that that they may be sites that are, you know, have less of, a, of an environmental concern. Um, but, you know, we would certainly be speculating without having a case-by-case -case assessment on that. Um, all of these unsealed wells are known to uh, release methane into the environment, which, of right. course, is a greenhouse gas. So, yeah, there are yeah. plenty of environmental impacts for sure. I guess in the context of you know, dealing with this in a serious way. I, I, I want to get your thoughts on the approach the government seems to be leaning toward. I mean, there's an acknowledgement maybe uh, from the premier that the system we have in place now isn't addressing the problem, but the idea of incentivizing companies through public funds, it would appear. What do you make of that approach? Well, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say it's really just another step in the, in the wrong direction. I mean, we are already on the path of the public increasingly paying uh, for this work, right? So there mm -hmm. was that $1 billion uh, that the federal government provided to Alberta back in 2020. Um, and the public has been lending money to the Orphan Well Association, of course, to deal with these sites that are called orphans. And of right. course, those are sites, as you alluded to earlier, that no longer have a solvent operator. So we are already spending um, a large amount of public money uh, into this um, to address this problem, uh, really in a, in a very small way, given the grand size of things. Um, and so, you know, the, the R-STAR proposal, as it was, is really just another step in that direction where the proposal is to create an incentive for companies to perform cleanup work, which they already have an obligation to do. The problem with the law is, is it doesn't actually stipulate a time frame, and so companies uh, naturally just push that work off, um, you know, into the, into the future. And so... You know, the R-Star proposal or other proposals like that uh, are really just trying to incentivize companies to do that work sooner. But the incentive they give is, you know, giving those companies um, royalty breaks. And so they're essentially taking public money away, um, you know, public money that would, that would be uh, generated uh, in the future. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I think it just exacerbates the the problem, if you like. And it is a real issue. I mean, the the more and more public money that gets allocated to this problem, you know, again, it it <clears throat> that's not the bargain that was struck uh, in Alberta 30 or 40 years ago, where more or less industry and the regulator came together and said, look, we will handle closure. You don't have to impose security deposits and strict time frames on us. This will be taken care of. And when there's a the odd exception where there's a problem, well, we'll have this industry-funded pool called the Orphan Fund, and it'll deal with this stuff. And, you know, it's just, it's just not how it played out, um, unfortunately. So, Right. So what should the path forward look like then? Well, I mean... My colleagues and I believe that this is a you know a good example of of a very significant, um, probably understated uh, problem, public policy problem, and you know the common approach in our socio political legal system is to strike some sort of a of a of an inquiry, um, you know, an, an independent uh, an inquiry that's independent of the current regulator um, who can you know basically undertake a significant fact finding exercise look at how other jurisdictions deal with this problem, you know, maybe take submissions on proposals like the R-Star proposal or what have you, but flesh them out on their pros and cons in a transparent way that gives that gives um, all affected stakeholders an opportunity to to um, to contribute to that to that dialogue. I mean it's the stakes are huge. Um, yeah. you know, so it's that's 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 our recommendation. Not earth shattering but definitely needed. Uh, well, more as mentioned, uh, the report is online at uh, policyschool.ca. Uh, Sean Fluger, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. All the best. Uh, that is Sean Fluger, Associate Professor, Faculty of Law, University of Calgary, also with the School of Public Policy, co-author of this report, policyschool.ca. Right, and look, we, we can support the oil and gas industry, but I think at the same time, you know, taxpayers uh, can also worry about their own interests, too. Like there's an enormous gulf between the the liabilities that exist and the money that's been set aside to pay for them. So this is potentially billions or even tens of billions of dollars of cost that could fall on the taxpayer. You know, a number that's potentially, you know, the equivalent to the, the level of debt Alberta is carrying right now. That's how big a number that is. So you think of what a challenge it would be at this point if we said, hey, we got to pay down our debt. That's going to be priority number one. It would not be easy. And it would not happen overnight and would not come without some you know, consequences elsewhere. So think about this cost coming due. And is it really fair for the taxpayer to bear that? Welcome back. Afternoon song. QR Calgary. Rob Breckenridge with you. Plenty more still to get to here as mentioned. But let's talk about taxation and how we could improve fairness in the tax system. There was a proposal that came up a, a while ago, the idea of income splitting. And so this would be like within a family unit uh, that if uh, one spouse is earning $80,000 and the other is earning $40,000, you know, that this could be viewed as not just as two individuals, but that, uh, you know, that income could be split uh, almost, uh, you know, to, to, to balance that out in a way. Now, that didn't really go anywhere. And the issue has been kind of dormant, but maybe it's worth revisiting. Uh, maybe we should be concerned about a perceived lack of fairness in the tax system. I think 
certainly a lot of Canadian families would feel as though, you know, they're, they're dealing with a lot, not just in terms of tax burden, but additional costs these days. Maybe now's a good time for this conversation. There was an interesting piece this week in the Financial Post, financialpost.com, on why this is a move that Canada should consider making. So what would it involve and, and why is it more fair than, than what we have now? Well, joining us to talk more about the idea is the uh, author of the piece. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Kim Moody, who's the founder of Moody's Tax, Moody's Private Client, also a former chair of the Canadian Tax Foundation, a former chair of the Society of Estate Practitioners. Uh, Kim, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Pleased to be here. Uh, like I say, I remember, you know, the income splitting debate, you know, came up some some years ago. But wh- why do you think this this issue has really dropped off though more recently? Well, it's a good question, Rob, which is one of the reasons why I wrote the piece. It certainly hasn't, you know, fallen from my memory because mm-hmm. I, I practice tax, of course. And I but, um, you know, I, I just I think when, uh, you know, when the new liberal government's not so new anymore, but when the liberal government came in and eliminated income splitting uh, in a whole bunch of different fronts, you know, I think a lot of people resigned to the fact that, yeah, this is this is it. This is the way it's going to be. But I just think that's foundationally unfair, and uh, and I think it is time for a revisit. So, give us kind of the the big picture overview here. What what does it mean, or what would it mean then to to tax families as a unit as opposed to taxing individuals? Well, like I said in the piece, Rob, um, you know this this idea is not a new one, and there's other countries around the world and. And in particular, the United States has a limited form of family taxation. But mm-hmm. you know, the Royal Commission on Taxation, which I mentioned in the piece, which was the first and only time that Canada has had a comprehensive review of our taxing system, our tax system, uh, recommended in its voluminous reports that that the basic uh, taxing unit should be the family. Because I don't know about you, Rob, but certainly in my family, I know I've been married for 31 years and my wife and I combine our income and we pay our bills together. We have some friends that, you know, that have been married a long time too, and they still separate their accounts and one spouse pays for certain expenses and the other. But I find that rather rare. Most families I'm familiar with will combine their income in some sort, uh, some sort of fashion. And so I've always been of the belief that this commission, which re- recommended, you know, to, that the family should be the basic taxing unit should should mirror economic realities of families because most families do combine their income and pay for expenses. And so it, it's only fair that they should be taxed um, on that unit. And the way that it works right now, it, the individual, as you know, is taxed. Right. Um, and you combine your income for certain credits or, or refundable credits like the GST credit, the Canada child credit and things like that. But but outside of that, you pay your tax separately. So if you have a stay-at-home spouse, for example, or or common-law partner with low income, and you have a higher income that pays for the family expenses, you know that is an overall higher tax burden than what would happen if you're uh, if it was equal, for example. And so it it does get to be very unfair. Right. So then essentially, if you had a spouse earning $80,000 a year and uh, another spouse not working, uh, that essentially then this kind of a system would almost view them like the equivalent of two forty thousand earners. Essentially, I mean, simplistically, yes. But 
of course, the sophisticated person who thinks about this for a while could say, well, listen, you can just play with the tax rates to get to the same spot that you're at now. Right. And that's certainly true. Uh, and if ultimately that's where it landed, then fine. Uh, I, I do. I am of the view that our tax rates are, are way too high. And my previous week's column in the Post uh, said that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah. wrote, I wrote a separate column on that. But but I would hope that ultimately, if there is a, a change uh, in this, that the, you would look at the family economics as a whole and bring down the tax rate even slightly to mirror the, the economic realities that the family faces. Uh, it's not fair that one spouse who's higher income and another spouse who's very low income pay a combined rate of tax that's higher if you had just simply split that income. You go, to, one spouse goes to work and the other goes to work as well and you're in the same. That's just not, not fair in my view. Right, and I mean, is that the argument? Is the argument about fairness in your view? Or are there other efficiency arguments that, that could be made? Or what is the, the case as you see it? I think there's a bunch of tax tenants uh, that are important here. Fairness is the obvious one. Equity is another one, uh, need to, which is very similar to fairness. Yeah. And and uh, simplicity. I mean, if you were to combine family income and and taxes, you you arguably could make the system a lot simpler. Um, you know, you wouldn't have to do a number of separate calculations for credit eligibility, for example. It would all just be right there. And so, it's it's administration as well is, is a good argument. Right. And I know when people think about changes we could make to taxation rates or the tax code, part of it is, you know, looking at what would be maybe the easiest to achieve or how difficult a change would it be. So where, where does this rank as, as far as you can see? I mean, as you mentioned, it might add some simplicity to the system, but is it a, a simple path to getting there? Nothing is simple in tax, uh, Rob. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, our our good buddy uh, Albert Einstein is attributed to to saying, and I'm not sure if this is true, but I, I recycle it lots, that, you know, there's nothing more complex than the income tax. And in my world, right. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> income tax, it, you know, the Income Tax Act is about three and a half inches thick. You know, very nuanced and complex language and interpretive issues. And, and I think a key objective uh, to getting family taxation or any kind of change for that matter is simplicity. You know, the average Canadian, as much as they might think they know tax, and there's lots of mythology out there, you know, they don't know tax unless you're sitting in my chair and there's probably about a thousand of us across Canada and that's being rather aggressive. Mm-hmm. There's just not a lot of tax specialists out there. Right. And so I think a key objective is to make it simpler and more understandable and more administrable, if that's proper English, to the average Canadian. Makes sense. Uh, people can read your case for this, as mentioned, financialpost.com. Much more at moodystax.com. Kim, appreciate your perspective on all this. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Yeah, thanks very much, Rob. All, all the best. best. Take care. Uh, that is Kim Moody, uh, former chair of the Canadian Tax Foundation, former chair of the Society of Estate Practitioners, founder of Moody's Tax, moodystax.com, as latest as mentioned, financialpost.com. For why we should, in the interest of fairness and simplicity, he said, uh, you know, look at taxing the family instead of the individual. And it would reflect the realities of families, of couples, you're not really separate income earners because, you know, it's, it's about family income when it comes to all your other financial realities and, and decisions. So it's an interesting point he makes. Will this uh, gain any traction? I don't know. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.